we are dealing with the fact that it's not just equality, but it's existence. And right now it looks pretty, pretty bleak, but we, we as a people still rise up. That is our, our spirit, that is our essence. And so we shall breathe, bring that together. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The conviction this week of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd is a milestone in the movement for black lives and racial justice. It's a rare moment of accountability for the seemingly unending litany of violence and abuse that black, indigenous, and people of color endure at the hands of police. Chauvin's conviction comes during Earth Week, the days of environmental activism leading up to Earth Day on April 22nd. This year, a central part of Earth Week is the We Shall Breathe virtual summit, which connects the climate crisis to issues of pollution, poverty, police brutality, and the COVID-19 pandemic, and places them all within a racial justice framework. We Shall Breathe is sponsored by the Hip Hop Caucus, led by its founder and president, Reverend Lennox Yearwood Jr., Reverend Yearwood is a minister, community activist, and U.S. Air Force veteran, and the Hip Hop Caucus addresses issues impacting underserved and vulnerable communities. Reverend Lennox Yearwood Jr. joins us to talk about his work for racial and environmental justice. I began by asking him to explain how the issues of racial justice and climate justice are connected. They are very much connected. Um, simply, simply put, they are connected because climate justice is racial justice, and racial justice is climate justice. That's the simple answer. The more difficult answer is is that the systems of extraction, the systems that literally don't uh, look down upon other human beings, uh, a system of supremacy in many cases, that system overlays the problem of police brutality, of pollution, of the pandemic, um, and of poverty. And so because of those overlaying of how we see one another, um, that then exacerbates the systems of the climate crisis. So the one thing with Earth, Earth Day, as you mentioned, is that this is definitely connected to justice. You're participating this week in the We Shall Breathe Summit. Uh, explain a little bit what that is and what you're demanding. Yeah, it's, it's a number of things there. Well, shout out to everybody around the world and shout out to everybody in Vermont. One of my best friends lives in Vermont, Bill McKibben, up there. And so I just want to give him a hello. But, um, you know, one of the things for me is that what we shall breathe as a person of color is just reclaiming. It's kind of piggybacking on what the civil rights movement did when they said we shall overcome. Despite lynching, despite Jim Crow, despite um, being at the back of the bus, despite being spit on at the lunch counter, they still believed that they would overcome, that one day they would have equality. Well, we're in the same situation where we are dealing with the fact that it's not just equality, but it's existence. And right now it looks pretty, pretty bleak. As you mentioned, there are many people of color, black and brown and indigenous, um, who are being killed by state-sponsored violence. There are many situations where 
environmental justice is raging uncontrolled, uncontrolled throughout communities and in which we have still have communities who don't have clean water in Mississippi, an Africa town in Alabama. Um, we still have people who, who don't have clean water post the Texas uh, snowstorms. Um, we still have situations where we have lead poisoning in Baltimore and Flint. And so it looks pretty bleak on that aspect. And we still have the highest number of people of color who died because of the pandemic, who were more vulnerable, who were those who were actually forced to go back to work early and then contract a disease and die. Um, and then those who, don't, who can't get a living wage. It, look, it looks bleak, but we, we as a people still rise up. That is our, our spirit. That is our essence. And so we shall breathe, bring that together, that despite all of these things, um, racist policies that are trying to disenfranchise from us from voting, um, pollution, poverty, the pandemic, so forth and so on, that we shall breathe. It also speaks to the issue of directly of George Floyd and Eric Garner. Um, obviously, George Floyd, um, who many people saw had, who was, who was murdered by having somebody kneeled on his neck for over nine minutes, and also Eric Garner in New York City, who was murdered by an illegal chokehold. Both of them um, said, I can't breathe. And so we connect the dots because we witnessed that trauma. That became a part of us because in this age of visual and technology, you now can see very in very much high deep and very high re resolution, unfortunately, someone being killed before your eyes, literally seeing them snuffed out. And so that's a hard thing. Um, it's one thing to come to the tree after the lynching has happened. It's one thing to see the lynching happening in real time over and over and over and over again. And so we just want to just bring together the connection between climate justice and racial justice and a affirmation that we shall breathe, that despite all that we're facing right now, that we will overcome. That's what we're doing. So we have our We Shall Breathe Summit and we're bringing together um, frontline and fenceline communities from all around um, the country, particularly from black and brown and indigenous communities to discuss what we need to do to raise up the issue of environmental justice and racial justice um, to create change. So one of the lead demands of the We Shall Breathe Summit is a just recovery from the parallel health pandemics of COVID-19, pollution in the climate crisis, and systemic racism. What would this look like? Well, it's well, a number of things. One, healthcare for all. <laughs> we start there. Um, but obviously, we're beginning to see some of these things now. There's a beginning of a transition. So one, policies that will deal with these issues. We believe very strongly that either you shape policy or policy will shape you. So policies going forth in regards to environmental justice, a policy that deals with um, putting forth and correcting legislation, and in some cases litigation, um, that was literally undercut from the car standards to the, 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 the coal fire power plant rules. There's so many different, the mercury rules um, so we're looking to stop and change those and, and put those rules back in place, but also in regards to issues regards to the climate crisis. Um, you know, obviously the current, our president right now has put forth his Build Back Better um, campaign, and we are obviously advocating for a Build Back Fossil Free uh, campaign. But we're looking for a campaign that literally addresses all of those issues to correct them. And we believe that policy is the way to do it. Traditionally, the environmental movement 
has been uh, you know, blamed for being very single issue, very focused on the trees and the bears and the traditional environmental you know, silos. What you're talking about now, environmental justice, broadening that look, um, is probably new for many of these traditional environmental organizations. How has the traditional environmental movement fallen short and how do they need to change? Yeah, first first and foremost, let me say I like trees and bears. I don't want anybody to think <laughs> Rev doesn't like the trees and the bears. Um, I, I, I like them too. I just think I think you, that's a great question because I think that it it really wasn't the inception of the climate movement that kind of got us on the wrong track, on the wrong direction. As we all know, um, the modern day environmental movement was really created between 1968 and 1972. And that, that movement parallels the Environmental Protection Agency, and in some cases, a little bit, the Department of Energy as well. And so when that, when that movement is created during that time frame, many of our large organizations are also created. In NRDC, uh, National Resource Defense Council, Greenpeace, League of Conservation Voters, um, you know, Rainforest Action Network, on and on and on. Most of our uh, Union for Concerned Scientists, most of them are created during that time frame. Um, now, obviously, we had a conservation movement that was before that, obviously, with NWF and Sierra Club. But I'm really speaking about the modern day environmental movement. And so once that's, once that's created at that time frame, the movement makes a decision that's very unique. They make a decision at that time they're going to silo themselves. They literally start off at that time frame and says, listen, we know that there's a burgeoning uh, gay rights movement going on in New York. We know that there's a black power movement going on post the assassination of Dr. King. We know that there's even there's an anti-war movement going on um, that's happening. Uh, young people are burning their draft cards. We know that there's a women's um, and feminist movement that's emerging. And in that, they decide in, in a very unique fashion, that we're going to silo ourselves. A lot of reasons for that. Now, the movement literally had resources. And so when they did that, it became a siloed movement. But what happens there, you cannot succeed as a siloed, segregated, progressive climate movement. And so when they began to be siloed, they it worked for a little bit because they got some legislation passed. They got the car standards passed, the clean air Act passed. They got a number of things passed, um, but in that, around literally around, I would say it was about twelve years ago, they really had an awakening. Uh, you know, when on, at the time of Representative Markey, at the time now Senator Markey, was putting forth um, his the Markey Waxman bill in in twenty ten, they got an awakening that they realized that they had siloed themselves even from themselves. The environmental justice movement that came about in the 1980s out of North Carolina, out of Warren County, um, that was chanting environmental racism. They siloed themselves from everything they felt to just be about just greenhouse gas and melting, uh, melting ice caps. And in doing that and kind of cutting themselves off, it became pretty much a very much very East Coast, West Coast, I would say Birkenstock type of movement. Now, again, I don't get against Birkenstocks, but I just want to say that's kind of what the movement kind of became. But what happened there then, when the Markey Waxman bill failed in 2010, then every, the movement almost came to an end. And it wasn't then when they began to, again, say, we have to broaden this movement 
and which they begin to look today in Disney's Sisters and Brothers, in the Keystone XL fight, and other fights around after that in 2011, the movement began to, to then look very, very different. And we then engage environmental justice, environmental racism, and climate justice. The movement began to look radically different. And the global south and more international movement began to look different. So now in the past 12 years, you now have a much more youthful, much more colorful, much more vibrant movement that now has environmental justice at the forefront of the president. Had President Biden canceled the Keystone XL pipeline and many, many other, now we have a long way to go on many other things, but at least this, this is the power of a people power, people centered movement. And now that we have that, we can really believe, we can begin to go forward to create change. You know, we've been talking about, I mean, part of what you're describing with the environmental movement, it was a largely white movement until, as you point out, the pipeline, the anti-pipeline struggle brought in indigenous people. But you yourself have also, you know, felt the brunt of what it means to, uh, you tweeted this week about a 2017 protest where you were beaten up and I think arrested by police in a big environmental protest uh, where white protesters were not harassed. Um, how do you reflect on what this experience has been like for you to participate in these spaces? Yeah, um, beaten up. I wasn't arrested. I mean, I actually, I, I tried to get arrested sometimes fighting the good fight, but I wasn't arrested uh, and I wasn't trying to get beaten up. But it was at the March for Science and I was literally there in 2017 and I was it was raining and I was running because I was, a part of the process and the officer didn't think I was supposed to be there. That's very important. He had saw a predominantly white crowd there, you know, marching, but still very much safe. And when he saw me literally cutting through the crowd, he thought I was out of place. And then he began to grab me to rough me up to see, to see what I was basically doing there. Um, that was hurtful because it is, but as a black person kind of actually kind of used to police kind of almost like checking your papers, as we would say, almost like a slave patrol, like, you know, what are you doing here? But I think more importantly, what really hurt me was that a lot of the activists who were part of the science march didn't say anything. Um, they just watched me get beaten up. And that really just dawned on me that, you know, one of the big problems is that, you know, we have a movement that is based upon white supremacy, that we're benefiting from the same thing um, that is actually, that, that we, so that we're against was actually protecting um, many of those in the movement. And so that, that was hard because, and then, you know, for me to move forward from that, you know, I realized that we have to, we have to, to defeat the climate crisis. We're going to have to defeat white supremacy at the same time, which also meant the movement has to acknowledge that it is based upon white supremacy. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's kind of the next step in that. And it has to then, look at its resources, its funding, its infrastructure, it's even its institutions. I think there needs to be a, a grand awakening. Many of those same organizations I talked about that was created 50 years ago may need to relook at themselves and see if they're relevant now, if they need to restructure themselves and, 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 and redo themselves um, for a new movement of the 21st century. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I really believe that. And I think that that's the one thing that's very difficult. And I think a lot of those probably listening, you know, may not understand that the privilege is a very unique thing. Sometimes you don't even know you have it um, until it's really kind of brought to you. 
Um, you just think that everybody has clean hair, clean water, or privilege. So I, I'm here. I'm here as a testament that we have to change that. And I think that's the one thing that I want to help our movement to learn. You know, I'm originally from Louisiana, and so I kind of came into this movement through Hurricane Katrina. Um, I wasn't in New Orleans when Katrina hit, but actually, maybe in a worst case scenario, I, I watched family and friends drown in the richest country in the world. Um, but I also realized then, um, because predominantly poor people um, and poor black people were left behind, I realized that the inconvenient truth just wasn't the climate crisis, but the inconvenient truth was also white supremacy. And I just think that again, we have to deal with that. And I actually think that if we deal with that, then we can find the, the, the core solution to fixing the climate crisis. For people who are listening, who care about environmental issues and are climate activists, how did, what does it mean for them? How would you advise them to take on the issue of white supremacy and white privilege in their own work? I mean, I think the first thing we have to just acknowledge it. I think you have to just realize that this is a movement that has been based on you know white supremacy. I'm very encouraged actually by Sierra Club. Sierra Club came out with dealing with our own uh, uh, last year, their own recognition of their own, what they call their own monuments, um, people who they looked up to, who was clearly um, based upon white supremacy. And so I was very encouraged to see Sierra Club and many other organizations who are now trying to not only be do a white supremacy, but also be an anti-racist climate organization. So I'm excited by that. I, I want to say that I'm, I'm happy, but I think the next step is that we have to then go further um, and to help broaden the movement and broaden the space. In many cases, step down, I think, and, and, and shift. I think that, or as we saw with Keystone, we, we see that when we add more voices, we win. We see that. So I think that that's what we have to do. Um, but I think that acknowledging that, there, that white supremacy has been a part of our movement, um, acknowledging that we maybe need to transition our organizations be much more diverse, much more inclusive, much more have equity engaged. We must engage ourselves as far as having um, the fact that we must be anti-racist. And I think the last thing is in this, the, re the realization that we have to do this together. What have been, you think, the biggest environmental victories at a time, you know, during the Trump years when there were a whole lot of losses? Yeah, there were a few. <laughs> <laughs> what what uh, victories stand out? Yeah, no, there's, there's without a doubt the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Atlantic Coast Pipeline is a pipeline that was running through Virginia. Actually, it was it was it was an amazing victory to stop that. It was two major uh, fossil fuel industry companies, uh, both Duke Energy and Dominion Energy, and um, that was one. And again, when we had it was going through Virginia and it just, a number of communities, the mountain communities, which were mostly rural and white, came together with those who were out in Richmond, Virginia, who were mostly black. And, and they all united together and they didn't break. They didn't break um, and they outlasted. And it was a, an amazing victory. And it was, I think, one that didn't get as much um, acknowledgement in our movement, but it was a very powerful victory, um, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. I think the other victory, that we had was that um, we, we know that the, the Trump administration back then was really continuing the cycle of climate denial. 
And I think that the movement really had, was pushing back on that. Um, and so we, the movement got them, even when they were in their strongest position, to move from climate denial to climate delay. And that's still a bad situation, but they then moved them to having them not just say that climate, climate, climate change doesn't exist, but to then move them to, like, okay, well, we, we can't afford it. You know, it's not good for the economy. Um, so now, I think where they are now, which is they now move from climate denial to climate um, delay to climate dilute. And so I think that's where we are now. I think they want to now dilute energy policies that are coming forth. So I think we have to just still fight that because that doesn't work either. We can't have diluted energy policies. But I think that that's very powerful. I think that the movement did that during a time when it was very difficult. I think also it just kept a spirit of resistance. Um, which is most important. I think that they were, they were just, they realized that, you know, if we, this, losing this battle is, is not one that we can lose. It's, you know, it, it, this one is one in which even when we're all gone from here on this planet or we moved on to our next, whatever it is, we, you know, moving to part of the planet itself. But for the next generation, um, the fact that they can't have clean air water that 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 wouldn't work so it's very excited to see how they push back during those years the biden administration has brought in um some leading figures of the environmental movement into some key roles around climate and the environment and probably most visibly uh with deb halland uh as secretary of the interior the first native american to head the interior department so as a movement that has honed its teeth on resistance, you now have a different footing. You have potential allies and positions of power, but now everybody has kind of a different role to play because they're no longer in the movement. How do you work with them? How do you um, seize whatever opportunity there is and yet keep up the pressure as resistance? Yeah, I, you know, that's, that's, that's an important question as we move forward. You know, for me, I think we, we can learn from what we did with President Obama. You know, when we we kind of had kid gloves with President Obama in his first term, you know, we were letting him kind of get away with saying things like, you know, I'm doing above all energy strategy. And then we're like, nah, it's not going to work. You know, that's not, <laughs> science, science ain't going to work for that. So they, in the second term, we put pressure on him. And I think that even though we were, it was the inside outside strategy approach. And I think that worked really well. And I think so even though we were inside discussing what we need to do as far as energy policy, we were definitely giving street heat as well. Hence with the Keystone XL pipeline, we just, we wasn't going for that, even though at the time it was, it was Secretary Clinton and at the time Secretary, and Secretary Kerry, we, we wasn't going for it. And so I think we have to maintain that. That example, I think, is what we need to do now as well. I think we have to have that same mentality. And we have more. We have those who are inside, and I think we need to give them cover. I think we need to allow those who are much more progressive to give them the cover so they don't become isolated. So allowing for us to, to continue to lift up those solutions, not backing away. So, for instance, when the Biden administration, the Biden administration put forth their Build Back Better um, for infrastructure, you know, people will still say, well, that's nice. It's important. It's great. But the Thrive Act, you know, acts for much more money and, and, is, and is much more, um, would, would deal with the situation much better. And I think we have to keep doing that, just being much more aggressive 
and how we're approaching it. Not, I'm happy that people are not putting forth the green new that they put forth the green new deal, and obviously in a different version of it. So Corey Bush and and Senator Markey and, and AOC are putting forth you know re- investments that are different. So it's ex- we have to do that. I think that we have to also just stand up. I think that it, if we see that they're not doing and they're wavering, we gotta we gotta be strong. And those who are, it's the, the, the key thing is power and influence. And we have to just really make sure that we understand the, the difference between those two different things and how we push to create the change. But again, we, we have a time clock. You know, the difference between us and other generations is that, you know, they, they, they were dealing with some very difficult situations in time, but they didn't have a time clock. You know, the, the reality is that science is science. And so we can play around all we want to, but if we don't, if we don't, if we don't deal with these situations, we, I can't get back 2021 um, in 2024. And so we'll, we can't lose time. So unfortunately, that's going to cause us maybe to be a little bit, maybe some awkward moments, so maybe some tense conversations, you know? I mean, that's what, I mean, listen, I'm on the street side. So, you know, for the, for people on the street side, street team, you know, Rev's going to be there. You know, I, I'm okay with be a little bit, little, be a little awkward, <laughs> a little bit challenging conversations going on. So believe you me, I, I'm okay with that. But I mean, we need that. We, we need those moments to happen. We're the, we're, you know, talking about this and operating at a time when there are um, some dueling images um, is the image of January 6th and of a resurgent white supremacist, white nationalist movement. There's the image of the police killings of black and brown people. And there's the images, the more hopeful images. I want to know what gives you hope in these times. You know, I tell you, I was speaking one time. It's funny. I'm speaking in Long Island, New York. um, And it was the the state rep there is a black guy named Bernie Sanders. It's pretty funny. He, he plays on that all the time. But uh, speaking of Vermont, but he says his name is Bernie Sanders and he's a black state rep in New York. And so he had a climate conversation that he invited me, invited me to to speak at. And, you know, I gave my my spiel um, about why we need to be hopeful and why we got to keep fighting and the climate crisis and all the different things. And afterwards, um, a young a young person came to me who was probably no older than the young person who was killed in Chicago recently, Adam Toledo, probably about 13 years old, came up to me and said, you know, Rev, that was a great speech you gave there on, I never, I never really seen many environmentalists who look like you. Um, and I like, well, you know, thanks. But then he, but then he said this, he says, but why do you want to save hell so bad? And that just hit me. Um, and I realized that for many people in our country, in our world, this is hell. Um, it's hell because of the policies that are around them, that they're in poverty, um, police brutality, the policies that are actually killing them um, in regards to lead poisoning and and landfills in their backyard, 68% of black people live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant. It's, it's hell. But as I told him then, and I says, you know, I'm not trying to save hell at all. Um, 
but I'm definitely not trying to save what we got now. Um, so I want you to believe that we can, uh, another world is possible. Um, and if you can believe another world is possible and we ain't saving hell and we ain't saving what we got now, we're looking for another world. And I just believe that that's what we have to have is that that keeps me hopeful that I believe that another world is possible. Another world that's not based upon extraction, another world where the fossil fuel companies business plan, which means a death sentence for my communities is possible. Another world where, um, you know, you don't have uh, fossil fuel executives in Texas who are gleeful because of the freezing weather in Texas, where you have children freezing to death. Um, another world is possible where you don't have prisoners out of prisons in, in California putting out wildfires, but then can't get firefighter jobs. Another world is possible. And I think another world is possible where I actually believe that you can live in a place where you're not judged by the hue of your skin, that we can actually be brothers and sisters, that we can all be whoever we are and be humans and we can coexist together. I believe another world is possible. So I'm not trying to save hell, not at all. I'm not trying to save whatever we got now in some cases, but I just believe another world is possible. And if we believe that, that gives me hope. Reverend Lennox Yearwood, thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me. Reverend Lennox Yearwood Jr. is the president and founder of the Hip Hop Caucus, 